Hey guys, it's Beth. A uh, big apology. So sorry. Our audio is not the best in this episode. Gotta blame it on the bad laptop. Just a reminder, if you want to help out on that laptop, you can join our Patreon. The link to our Patreon is in the description of this episode. I'm really sorry about the audio quality, and I promise we'll do better next time. But it's still a good podcast. Enjoy! Hello, and welcome to episode 71 of Killer Hangover. I'm Bettina. And I'm Beth. And today we're going to cover stories from Colorado. Woohoo! <laughs> I'm excited. I've got the true crime. Bethy has the drink as well as the paranormal. What do you have for us? Okay, so this week is going to be a little different, but... My sister brought me a bag of coffee from Denver, Colorado, and I thought, hmm, why not drink this for the podcast? Because I actually get to drink it. Yay. I'm drinking alone because this is virtual. It's not like mom drinking her Corbell alone by any means. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, hey. I am drinking coffee alone, which I think is a little more... Don't judge. Anyway, so this is from Novo coffee. I actually got on their website. They have coffee classes, mom. Oh, cool. I know. They get coffee from South America, Africa, just kind of like all over the world. Uh, the one I got was from uh -huh. South America. It's called San Sebastian and it's washed. Ooh. It's washed Katura, Colombia. Mm. But it also has flavors of hot fudge, cream, and tangerine. Interesting. Yes. I would love to take a coffee class because, I mean, I drink it every morning, but do I really know about coffee? I don't. Right. And it looks like the coffee classes teach you about each of their coffees, where, where they come from around the world, how the beans are grown, what they do with it, how they form it, how they grow it, what's a good drink you can make with it, how to actually brew your coffee. I mean... I just thought mm. that was so cool. Very, very. What a great idea. Need to suggest it to someone here in this town. I know. It's <laughs> Novo Coffee. And I wonder if there are more coffee places that do do that. I might look into that here in Kansas City. So like I said, Novo Coffee, N-O-V-O -O Coffee. There's a lot of options you can order online. It's fantastic. I like to grind my beans. I like a darker coffee. And this is, this is very yummy. But... If you are in the mood for an alcoholic beverage, I did find one. Unfortunately, we are not drinking it this week, but it definitely looks like a recommendation that we will have to add to our list of to-dos once the baby comes because this looks delicious. All right. So it's kind of similar to a white Russian and mm. it is a Russian beverage, I guess, but nobody knows where it came from. Nobody knows who made it, where it started, <laughs> or anything like that. Nada. But it's called the Colorado Bulldog Cocktail. Okay. It is one ounce vodka, one ounce coffee liqueur. See, I'm sticking with the theme here. One, yeah, ounce, <laughs> one ounce light cream or milk, and one to two ounces of Coca-Cola to taste. What? Coke? Yeah. Really? Yes. This looks so yummy. So you use an old-fashioned glass. You fill it with ice. You mm -hmm. pour in the vodka and the coffee liqueur. Then you add the cream 
and then top it off with Coca-Cola. Stir well, serve and enjoy. Interesting. Doesn't that yes. sound tasty though? Let's do. Let's try it. I know. You know, us and our cream. I'll have to buy every one of those ingredients except for the vodka. I think I have that. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't have any of it. I have all of it. I have the coffee liqueur, the vodka, cream. We have Diet Coke. Will that work? I don't know. Have have Alex try it and then get back to me because I'd rather have Diet <laughs> Well, I'm a Pepsi girl. So can I have Diet Pepsi? I'm going to change it all up. <laughs> Leave it to you to not stick to the recipe. <laughs> All right, Mom. Um, yes. Here we go. Let's jump right in. Tell us a story. Sip your coffee and listen. Okay, this is a sad story all the way around. Sorry. As parents, you try to do the best for your children. As you know, you teach them, hopefully by example, to be good people, to share, say kind words, and help others. You teach them to be safe. Look both ways when crossing the street. I know your boys do that. Wear a helmet. I know your boys do that. <laughs> okay. They're like known in the neighborhood as the helmet boys. Because they go out to ride their scooters. That lasts maybe five minutes. And then they're climbing trees and playing t-ball with their, with their helmets, helmets on. on. They could be wrestling, but they have their helmets on. I think it was just the other day Nolan took his helmet off and the neighbor goes, oh, I didn't realize you had such curly hair. (laughs) (laughs) The helmet twins. (laughs) They do, though. They keep them on. As long as they're outside, they keep those on. You know what? Uh, I really prefer it. Because Aiden especially is a klutz just like his yaya and his mom. (laughs) And he has bitten it so many times. But that helmet saves that head every time. (laughs) And that's a precious head to save. So, yeah. Okay. And we also teach them to wear your seatbelts, which your boys are very, especially Aiden, is very Rule follower. Yep. All the way around. Never talk to strangers when you're alone. And even when you're with Aiden, he's so funny. He'll go, he'll go, is that a stranger, Yaya? And I'm like, that's a man walking. I don't know him. You don't know him, but he's, you know, it's just a man walking. Okay. Hi, man walking. (laughs) Oh, I think it's even more embarrassing when like the gentleman passes you and he's like, hello. And Aiden's like, mom, is that a stranger? (laughs) I know. Can I say hi to him? Can I say hi? (laughs) He did that so often while we were walking. Oh, boy. (laughs) Okay, anyway. (laughs) So all of these things and more were installed in little Jessica Ridgeway as she was growing up. At 10 years old, Jessica lived with her mother, Sarah, and her grandmother on a tree-lined street in Westminster, which is a community just west of Denver. She would walk to school every morning, meeting up with a friend halfway to the school. The morning of October 5th, 2012, started off just like any other school day. Jessica ate breakfast with her mom, then grabbed her backpack, and at 8.35, started off for school. But she never made it. In fact, she made it no further than a thousand feet from her front door. Mm. Austin Sig, 17 years old, lived just over a mile from Jessica's house. He was a troubled young man. 
caught at a very young age, like 11 or 12, with pornography. He was sent to a faith-based counselor to get him on the right path again. Unbeknownst to his parents, he also had a peaked interest in mortuary science and never quit the pornography. It wasn't long before he began to view images of children being raped, strangled, and dismembered. Now, why the blankety blank blank is that on the internet? Mom, That's I don't just know. beyond don't, grasping. Don't even get me started on all that. I it's I, I just can't even. Anyway. It's as easy as just typing anything you want to see into the Google search bar nowadays. and it's, Wouldn't that be on the deep web or something? I mean, that would... Uh, I don't know. I've I, never I, gone and searched for it. But. No. I mean, that's just yuck. Ironically enough, both Jessica's and Austin's elementary school teachers described the two kids as kind and caring. Mm. Austin had attended the same elementary school that Jessica was was then attending. Classmates, however, found Jessica fun to be around, but Austin's classmates found him to be a little creepy, mostly because of his obsession with death and the body. So he's 17. Remind me, how old is she? She's 10. Okay. She's just 10. They did label him as being very smart, but also being bullied because he had a high voice. But both mothers, on separate days, called 911. Jessica's mother called on the afternoon of October 5th when the fifth grader had not returned from school, reporting her daughter missing. Now her and the grandmother had combed the street, had gone to the friend's house. The friend wasn't home at the time. So I was listening to the 911 call and she said, we've knocked on the door. There's nobody there. So I don't know whether she made it there or not. And then she was looking for her scooter or her bike in the garage. He finally found that. So anyway, they had done a search of the neighborhood. Oh, so scary, though. You can't find your baby. Anyway, we'll talk about the 911 operator later. A massive search effort that at one point included more than a thousand people and 75 local, state and federal law enforcement agencies ensued. Mm. But to no avail, the little girl who loved to make up dances, hummed to melodies, and giggled at words she made up. The little girl who wore purple glasses that did nothing to hide her twinkling blue eyes was nowhere to be found. What gives me chills is the recorded 911 call made by Sarah to report Jessica missing. By the time she had made that call, Jessica was already dead. Just to know that, in, you know, know that in hindsight, I guess. And then to listen to the call just breaks your heart because you know that Jessica has already been killed. Mm. On o- October 23rd, Mindy Sig, who is Austin's mother, called 911. So October 5th is when Jessica was taken. And October 23rd is when Mindy Sig called 911. Okay. This call is haunting. Because she asked the 911 operator to send police over to her house to arrest her 17-year-old son. Can you imagine? Oh my gosh. He had just confessed to her to the killing of Jessica Ridgway. Now, he did lie to her and say, I think he said, I never sexually assaulted her and her death was quick or something like that. he, He was a very proficient liar. Let's just put it that way. I just, I mean, 
like you said, can you even imagine making that call? No, neither it one just, of those calls from either no. of those mothers. Just Now, I have to add here, I guess 911 operators are trained to ask the same question, right? To ask questions. Because normally, you don't have a mother calling in to say, my son just admitted to the killing, come and get him, right? And it's my belief that they're trying to, to keep them on the phone, especially in like an emergent situation, to keep them on the phone asking questions until police can arrive. Right, right. But this operator just wasn't thinking beyond the box, let me tell you, because, I mean, I shouldn't laugh, but it was just really... So the mother calls and says, you know, I my son just confessed to killing Jessica Ridgeway. I need you to send the police here. So the operator says, uh, and um, what's going on there? Because they're used to them calling 911. I have an emergency. You know, I have somebody on the ground or whatever. And so she asks what's going on. Explain to me what's going on. Well, the mother had just explained to her, I need a police here to arrest my son. Well, maybe she was just making sure that he wasn't being aggressive towards his mom or anybody else in the house. Uh, she asked that later. <laughs> I mean, she's like, ma'am, are you in danger? You know, I think that's another question. That probably should have been the first question yeah. she should yeah. have asked. So Austin, then the dispatcher says, can I talk to your son? Is he willing to talk to me? This is, of course, after the mom explained everything. So this Austin gets on the phone. And he has a really high voice. I mean, not high voice, a very young voice. Sure. I mean, he doesn't sound like a 17-year-old kid, but he's also very confident. I mean, mm. it's just like, yes, I killed her. So the dispatcher asks him the same, I think, stupid question. So what's going on there? He answers, I don't exactly get why you're asking me these questions. I murdered Jessica Richway. Send yeah. a police. That, yeah. I mean, he just went straight to the point. There's no other question. Just, you know, that's what he said. I, I murdered Jessica Ridgeway. There is no other question you can ask me. Just send a squad car over here. Later, the dispatcher speaks to Mindy again and asks if Austin is still with her. Yes, she answers. I'm hugging him. Oh. I know. It's just like, oh, oh my I just God. can't imagine. A few days after Jessica's disappearance, so we're backing up now, all right? No one knows who killed her at this point. A few days after Jessica's disappearance, her backpack was found. In it were her glasses and pants, shirt, and underwear, all smelling of urine. Mm. Detectives were now pretty sure the little girl was dead. They began to look for an adult for the murder, of course. Sure. On October 10th, so that's five days after the murder. Two black garbage bags were found alongside a street nine miles from Jessica's house. Inside were most of Jessica's remains. After an intense search, the lab was able to find a partial DNA sample. Just a little one. The DNA matched the sample taken from Jessica's discarded backpack. But the DNA did not match any of the hundreds of samples the police had collected. Yeah, of course not. Wow. What did, however, turn up was a match to DNA found on a 22-year-old woman who had been attacked in May of 2012 while she was out running. A man came up behind her and tried to hold a rag with chloroform over her nose and mouth, but she was able to get away. 
that was the only match they found. And from what I understood, maybe I understood this incorrectly, but from what I understood, they actually took swabs from the males in the Westminster community, as well as any males connected to Jessica's family. So basically knocked on doors and took swabs of men. Really? I've always wondered if they can do that. Well, obviously, if they say no, they can't. Sure. But everybody was very willing to give their DNA. So we're talking hundreds of samples that were sent to this lab. But they're looking for men. So They're looking for men. They're looking mm. for men. So the mother of Austin, one of her friends placed a call expressing concern about Austin. They also showed a picture of some of the things that had been found in the backpack to see if anybody could identify it. And there was a cross left in either in the remains or in the backpack. There was a cross and Mindy also recognized the cross as I think it was like on a necklace as one that uh, was similar to what Austin wore. So they kind of had sights on him before Mindy called the police then? No, Mindy was the one who kind of turned their direction because remember, they were looking for a man. So she's the one who turned their direction to Austin. Okay. But still, I mean, he was so confident that he hadn't left any DNA behind that he gave police his DNA and told them that he was at home sleeping because they did bring him in for questioning. After his mom had already turned him in and he told... No, no. This is this is. Okay, before. so I'm confused. Okay, Sorry, so... you might have to... All right, so follow me. So they found the trash bags with uh, Jessica's remains. Right. Okay. This all happened before he called. Okay. All right. I just wanted to put the 911 calls closer while they were doing this neighborhood search Mindy so he hadn't turned himself in yet one of Mindy's friends called and said hey could you look at this kid so then they called him into the police station and asked him he's like dude I was sleeping I don't know I wasn't anywhere around and yeah you can take my DNA I don't care on October 22nd, the media released news that DNA had been found linking the attack on the jogger and Jessica's death. But they had his DNA, so did they link what they had from him to that stuff or no? They just didn't even run it in comparison. Not at that point, and I'll tell you how the DNA was processed. So... I guess after hearing the news that the media had a connection, Austin didn't feel so confident anymore because it was the day after that he confessed to his mother that he had something horrible to tell her. I guess he was sitting at school and they were just releasing this media. I don't know how they were listening to it at school. But anyway, I guess he just totally went slack, just turned white because it was like, oh, crap, they have DNA. Think about that for a second. He's a kid in high school sitting in class. Who murdered somebody. Yeah. And that just right? just give you the heebie-jeebies all over. Yeah. I mean, 17 years old. So now are you following with the time? I am. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So here's the twist in all of this. From what I understand, the lab would send back empty envelopes labeled with names of those who had submitted the samples. If the envelope was empty, it meant the donor's DNA did not match samples from Jessica or the jogger. Okay. Austin's envelope came back empty, meaning he was no match. But this was after he had already admitted to the crime. Right. All right. So investigators looked into the situation and found that Austin's sample had been lost and hadn't (gasps) been tested yet. Oh my God. What if he wouldn't have come forward? Exactly. 
and they wouldn't have been, he would never yeah. have been caught. He's not even 18. He's not even in the system yet. Like, oh my gosh. So I guess they found the sample that's been lost and they tested it immediately. And it came back confirming Austin was telling the truth. His DNA matched the samples from Jessica and the jogger. Oh my gosh. I mean, they were testing hundreds and hundreds of samples. Oh, I Granted, understand. I'll, there's, I'll there's, give them that. There's human error. They're I understand. Swamped, but holy this cow. Sample was lost. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So if the DNA didn't tie Austin to the murder, his description of the crime during the six hour interview was too detailed to leave any doubt. Mm. He admitted that he was driven by a sexual drive when he nabbed Jessica. This was about the time in the interview that detectives found that Austin was a very compulsive and capable liar. He told them that at no time did he sexually assault her. He later admitted that he had, but that was probably after detectives told him that they found proof that he had sexually molested her. Mm. He actually took Jessica to his bedroom in his house. Oh my gosh. Where he had her change out of her urine-soaked clothes into his own t-shirt and shorts. He then proceeded to cut her hair and then tried to strangle her with zip ties. Oh my gosh. This attempt did not work because, as he put it, I didn't have enough leverage. Then the ties broke. He eventually strangled her with his own hands. Austin told the investigators, There's no better word to describe what I have done than evil. Evil and a monster? Because not only did he kill that sweet, happy-go-lucky child, he also dismembered her, fulfilling a sexual fantasy, he said in the interview. He then kept her head and some organs, which he had labeled, and he placed them in a crawl space at his house. Okay, hold on just a second. I understand, you know, probably nabbed her after school. His parents are probably still at work. But dismembering a body takes time. Okay, remember he nabbed her as she walked to school. So oh, it was just so a few minutes. Day. He had all day. It was just a few minutes after 835. That's right. That's right. That's right. Oh, my gosh. So he explained to them where the crawl space was and all these things were found and provided even more evidence if that was needed. Wow. They found her organs, like her liver, her heart, you know, etc. And they were all labeled like someone had dissected them, like, you know, and put them in a container. Oh, my gosh. Austin pled guilty to 15 counts, which included first-degree murder, sexual assault of a child, and charges from the attack on the female jogger. I'm happy he's not even fighting any of this. All against the advice of his defense attorney, yeah. of course, Ryan yes. Lower. Because he admitted guilt, there was no trial, but rather a hearing on November 18th, 2013, which was followed by his sentencing. Of course, his defense attorney argued that Austin was only 17, not an adult when he committed the crimes, and should have the possibility of parole in 40 years. Austin even seems to know better than that. He seems to even know that he needs to be put away. Called himself evil. Yeah. Yeah. The defense claimed that perhaps Austin was not totally in control of his actions since his mother had inhaled paint fumes and fallen downstairs when she was pregnant with him. <laughs> What? I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh. We're grasping. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. 
we're grasping here, but yes. To add to all his problems, the defense said, he was born with a head deformity due to the use of vacuum extractor at his birth. And he had serious intestinal issues, even undergoing surgery for this problem at age two months, three years, and six years. There are plenty of babies that go through a lot more than that that turn out just fine. Well, I mean, it's all tough. I, I, you know, fine, but... You don't turn into a murderer. I mean, no, but it does make you wonder about that head. About the head injury. Injury does make head you curious. Injury. He might have been born with it right from the beginning. Just makes you curious. The district attorney, Pete Weir, Wire, and his team pushed that Austin never leaves prison. Mm. This push was backed up by Anna Salter, a psychologist who studies sex offenders. After reviewing police records of the case, she noted that Austin's parents did divorce, but he was well treated by them and had not been abused as a child. Yet, she added, he did display tendencies of sadism and narcissism, traits that we have seen in other murderers that had in fact been abused, some severely as children. Well, I just wonder where his fascination with everything you mentioned in the beginning, what introduced him to that? Oh, who else had that same fascination? Dahmer. Yeah, but his dad kind of held his hand through that, like, as an experiment. And like, you know what I mean? Like, it was science to his dad. So it was cool. And his dad kind of held his hand through it. I don't see his dad. This, I don't see Austin's dad holding his hand through watching what you described earlier. I don't even want to repeat it. Right. Well, I think his mother kind of, well, didn't didn't stop him from his interest in mortuary science and in body, you know, dismembering bodies and stuff to learn, you know, as a science thing. I think she did. She kind of promoted it or pushed it or condoned it anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like he was pulled away from his fascination at all. From what I read, I think his mother kind of condoned it and, you know, just thought, well, this is his interest. It's different, but this is interest. I don't know. If that was one of my kids' interests, I would, what are you watching? Show me what you're reading. I don't know. That seems like an interest that's not very, Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Not only did Austin kill the 10-year-old girl, but then he performed a pseudo-optopsy, removing and labeling each of her organs. Quote, he had no empathy for Jessica Ridgway, Salter said. This was not an impulse he had and then felt, terrible about later she added this was something planned something Mm. he intended to do austin was sentenced to life in prison and while he is eligible for parole in 40 years he has been ordered to serve another consecutive 86 years oh wow so the judge made sure he was not getting out oh man you just i don't know we don't know what went on behind closed doors it just seems so I don't know. That just seems like such a bizarre hobby. It just seems so bizarre to me. It does. So at the sentencing, you know, when family members talk to the defendant and, you know, talk about their loved one that had been killed, you know how they do that? Yeah, like their last statements. Right. Well, Jessica's grandmother got up and spoke about the loss of, you know, Jessica because she was such a, just a ray of sunshine. But then her mother did something interesting that I've never seen anybody do. She didn't even look at Austin and simply said, 
quote, I don't think the defendant has a right to hear how he affected me. Then she said, once we walk out of this courtroom, we will no longer remember his name. Only the legacy Jessica left behind. I am so sick and tired of the media putting the bad guys' faces on the news and talking about their names and you just always hear about the bad guy, the bad guy, the killer, da 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 da, da. And I know this podcast, yep. we talk about killers, but, you know, we talk about the whole story and we really, really, really try to always advocate for the victim. That's whose story should be told. Good for her. Yep. I, I just ne- had never heard. I mean, I'm sure people have done it, but I've never heard of anyone doing it. And she was just like, I, I you are you nobody. Know, to I, me. I'm not even going to recognize him. Yes. As anything. Yes. Anything. I, I do have a note on that cross. Um, so Detective Louise Lopez testified that a wooden cross was found along with Jessica's torso, not her backpack, her torso. DNA on the body was linked to evidence found on clothing of the jogger. This is just a summary. After authorities released photos of the wooden cross, a neighbor of Austin Siggs called the police. So the same neighbor that said he's a little off. Um, the neighbor said Sig wore such a cross. And she said he was taking mortuary science classes and was interested in dead animals and human bodies. So that's kind of what brought the attention to Austin. So I need to clarify here. I am not, a. Mm-hmm. I mean, you need mortuary. Like you need that stuff, you know, in all societies. You need the science of that. So if a kid's interested in that, okay, taking classes in that, that's one thing. But it just seems odd that that's like, I don't know. I don't want to take that away from anybody that is... You know what I mean? Like if one of our listeners has studied that and is fascinated in that, I'm sure not all people that study that are killers. Well, I thought it was kind of cool that they offered it in high school, mortuary. Yeah, I don't know a lot of high schools that offer that. That's pretty cool. I was just like, well, that's kind of cool, actually. You know, I, I would think that people would, teachers, parents, would detect if, okay, so my kid's interested in this, fine, you know, but there's an interest and then there's an obsession. Sure. You know, yes. And I mean, you can tell, I think you can tell if if you're tuned to your kids, you can tell if a person is obsessed with something. But again, people thought he was weird. I mean, and as teachers in the school, I would think that, I don't know, you would pick up on this, but I'm not blaming teachers. I'm just saying, I don't know. I'm used to smaller schools. Maybe it's different in a very big school. But don't you still have counselors and stuff you have to talk to? Like career counselors? Career counselor, sure. Like where are you yeah, going to go for college? I'm, what are you going to do That's after what I'm school? talking about. Yeah. Yeah. But even talking to them, it would, <laughs> I want to, I want to dismember bodies. <laughs> it's like, yeah. <laughs> you oh. and I need to talk in depth about that. Oh, uh, Yeah. <laughs> So a very sad story all the way around. I just feel so terrible for both mothers. Absolutely. Obviously, Jessica's mom and her grandmother, her whole family that went through this horrible, horrible thing. And then and then, of course, Austin's mother, too. I mean, I just can't imagine. Mm -mm. So there you go. Very sad story. Oh, man. What a mess. Okay. Moving on. Okay. We're going to go smoothly up. Uh, (laughs) Aiden. (laughs) So I have an interesting location for you today. All right. Yes. It was very fascinating to me. Good. So one day, the city of Denver looked around their city and they said, 
you know what? I want a park. I want a park and a botanical garden and an area for the people of the city to clear their heads and have a good walk around a nice, green, lush park. And then they looked around and they said, oh, well, looky there. Prospect Hill Cemetery takes up a lot of land. <laughs> oh, my God. It shouldn't be any problem at all to turn that into our park. Can they do that? That's right. That's what they did. <laughs> but <laughs> that's unbelievable. They can dig up graves. All the bodies. Well, technically the families of the bodies. Some dating back to when the cemetery opened in 1858 were oh. told to vacate their crypts, their coffins. I mean, some didn't even have coffins, so I guess their plots. They were given 90 days to get out. Wait, just a minute. They had to unearth their relatives yep. from the cemetery? Yep. Find and a new place for them. bury them? Yep. No. Yep. The city didn't pay for any of that? No. <laughs> okay, you just blew my mind. How is that possible? Some of it the city paid for, like, and I'll, I'll kind of get to it, but no, not really, no. You have 90 days to get your bodies out of here. Oh my gosh, that totally blows my mind. The story reminded me a bit of Lake Lanier in Georgia. Right. I told you about an <laughs> episode <laughs> in episode 58, but instead of a lake that you're swimming in, this is a park that you're running park and picnicking that you're in. Frisbee at. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'll back up a little wow. bit to when the 160 acre cemetery opened in 1858. And actually, according to hauntedrooms.com, the first person buried in Mount Prospect Cemetery was a convicted murderer, John Stoffel. And actually... And no one claimed his body. <laughs> his victim was his own brother-in-law. And to make the story even worse, it stated that there really wasn't a funeral or anything. And the two men were dumped in one burial plot. <gasps> oh my gosh, the victim and the murderer were dumped in the same place? Yep. Jeez. Oh, Anyway, the cemetery had designated acreage for different religions, ethnic groups, fraternal organizations. It sat on a huge plot of land. Like I said, it had 160 acres. It's a really big cemetery. Some of the areas right. were maintained really well by the families of those who died or like mm -hmm. for just for example, like the Catholic section. So the church would go through and have volunteers that would go through. Same with oh, the Jewish okay. section. Right. You know, they would have volunteers that would go, kind of go through and take care of it. But there were other parts of the cemetery that were really neglected. And over time, the cemetery was it was just so big and a lot of it went fell into disrepair and got overgrown gotcha. and right which is kind of creepy in itself to me but so that's kind of when in 1890 congress authorized the city to vacate those in the cemetery the whole area was renamed congress park in 1870 1890 okay so this is the the vacate your loved ones and bury them someplace else is not a recent thing this didn't just recently happen for some reason i thought this happened no like this lifetime. happened in like, 1890 Whoa. okay thank well, you well <laughs> actually that's when they called for everybody to vacate they had 90 days to remove the bodies and like i mentioned the cemetery is like sectioned off by religions and such so like i mentioned before for example the catholic portion of the cemetery which i guess was really big it was like 40 acres 
it was given to the archdiocese. They ended up buying that portion and they renamed it Mount Calvary Cemetery. But at the end of the day, the city was still like, um, that's good and all that. <laughs> but you still need to get your bodies out of here. Oh my gosh. So the Catholic Church paid for and again, probably had volunteers move all of the bodies that were in their new Mount Calvary Cemetery, moved them to another Catholic cemetery in the area. And then there was like a Chinese section of the graveyard that was, again, very large. And most of those bodies were removed and actually shipped back to China to families and stuff. Now, again, a lot of this is just from volunteers or like organizations and stuff. but. It's really, really expensive, and a lot of people couldn't afford to dig up grandma and figure out where else to bury her, so some people really couldn't afford it, and a lot of bodies, too, were either unknown or were buried so long ago, nobody knows, you know, maybe you can't read their headstone, or you also have the person who was a serial killer, you know, you have all those, like, bad guys too that were just thrown into plots like there's just a variety of bodies okay so even though they were given 90 days not all bodies were removed after those 90 days actually it wasn't until three years later so in 1893 the city of denver hired an undertaker e.p mcgovern to remove the rest of the remains at this point and My sources stated that there were over 5,000 burial sites still left scattered around the 160-acre area. Oh, my gosh. That he had to go and find and unbury. And yeah, so basically his job was to unbury all these bodies, put them in a new coffin, and then transfer the body to Riverside Cemetery. So another local cemetery. 5,000? Over 5,000. Is he still doing that like today? <laughs> Jeez, I know. Well, here's the thing. So he would make $1.90 on each body that he transferred. He began work on March 14th, 1893. And when he started, I guess he had an audience there watching him as he started his work. I bet he did. Over time, McGovern was like, oh my gosh, this is a lot of work. <laughs> I've only done three and I've got 5000 To make a larger profit, instead of using full-sized coffins for adults, he would start to use child-sized caskets. They're basically just one foot by three and a half feet long. It would make the transfer much, much faster, and he didn't have to use as much wood for the caskets. It was just going to be a lot easier for him, but that also meant that he had to mutilate and cut up all these bodies. Oh, but some of them were already just bones, right? I would imagine. But this gets messy because (laughs) he's just randomly throwing all these random bodies. Oh, this casket's full. Let's just close it. Start work on the other one. What? He was putting bodies? Oh, yeah. Several bodies in one? It became a scheme. There is like a few body parts or bones that would be left behind for souvenir hunters to find and keep. I mean, he was just trying to get in as much as he could and then transfer. And yeah, it it just became a total mess. He was overwhelmed and he just started tossing (laughs) random bones and bits of people and random caskets and sending them on their way. Eventually, the mayor canceled the contract with McGovern and the conversion of the cemetery to a park 
was finally finalized in 1907, leaving many burials within the park. Right. I mean, just think about that. There probably had to have been so many bodies left because, like I said, some of them weren't marked. I mean. Well, even if he if he happened to do. 2,000 bodies, which I doubt he did, that's still 3,000 bodies that are left in the... Oh, my gosh. Good job with your math, Mom. (laughs) Thank you. It was pretty easy. (laughs) It said that the city basically just filled in all the plots, removed any body debris, (laughs) leveled it all, and just started working in their ever-so-desired park. Scott Chesman came forward... And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He came forward with $100,000 to begin work on the park pavilion, giving the park its current name, Chessman Park. So they built this big, grand memorial pavilion. It was built in that like Greek style architecture with the huge white pillars. There's like these giant fountains below it. It's super fancy. The 40 acres that had been the Catholic plot of burial became the Botanical Gardens, which was officially dedicated in 1966. There is still a small portion that is named Congress Park, the original name, and this apparently was the old Jewish cemetery back in the day as well. I mean, it's honestly a really nice park today. It has (laughs) these big green lawns, there's jogging trails, the Botanic Gardens, an amphitheater, but... It's just really weird to think that you're just out there throwing a frisbee to your dog on the large grassy lawn that used to be somebody's quote-unquote final resting place. So obviously the disruption in their resting place has led to many beliefs that the park is now haunted. Of course. Stories of the now park being haunted started back when the bodies were being removed. One of the workmen working to dig up caskets and stuff just dropped everything and left because of all the paranormal activity. And in a couple of resources, I read that he was actually stealing brass buttons off of bodies. <laughs> and he just kept feeling like he was being watched by some paranormal spirit or that's a guilty conscience. I mean, come on. Yeah, hello. <laughs> and he just got up and ran and never came back to work. <laughs> The park is surrounded by some very nice neighborhoods in Denver, but it is said those living around the park during its renovations would often hear knocks on their doors from sad and confused looking figures, apparently spirits that were confused by what was happening to their graves. Oh. Moaning and crying was often heard from the park, and that has not stopped even to this day. Those that live around the park now experience apparitions walking around the park, They see children running around the park in the dead of night, but then just vanishing. And a woman is seen walking and singing to herself on the tree-lined paths. Many visitors to the park, no matter if it's in the evening or in the light of day, will feel very inexplicably just sad. Just all of a sudden, they're in the middle of a picnic with their family, and then all of a sudden, they're just so sad. Oh my goodness. Now I want to go to this park. Because you want to be sad? <laughs> no, no, I just want to go to the park. I just want to feel if I'm going to be sad. You just want to walk around and tell everybody, like, did you know there's bodies under here? <laughs> yeah, that's what, that would be me. <laughs> Do you feel anything? Because you're standing on a grave. <laughs> 
So, of course, you have the more spooky of hauntings. Apparently, the most seen spirit is one that has been nicknamed Slackjaw. He is described as a male in a blood-soaked, torn hospital gown. He is Mm. pale and thin and has a broken jaw, hence the name Slackjaw. Slackjaw. People that see him, think about this. People that see him are approached by him asking them for a cigarette. With his jaw hanging down. He's in a blood-soaked, torn hospital gown. <laughs> just even forget the broken jaw. Just think about that for a second. I would be terrified even this, even if this wasn't a ghost. <laughs> it gets worse. Apparently, he will also start to ask you, have you seen them? Have you seen them? And then he'll lift up his hospital gown and show you stab wounds. He will continue to ask you if you've seen the men that are responsible for his stab wounds. Oh my he will gosh. tell you that he couldn't afford treatment at the hospital. That's why he's out at the park. And then Slackjaw disappears. <laughs> Again, I would be terrified if this was a conversation with a real human being. Well, of course. While I'm out at the park for you know, pushing Aiden and Nolan on the swings and this guy comes up bloody broken jaw, a blood soaked hospital gown. You got a cigarette. (laughs) (laughs) Just imagine. And then he lifts up his hospital gown. Flashes you. (laughs) Shows you his stab wounds. I'd be like, oh my gosh. (laughs) And then actually you'd feel better if poof he all of a sudden vanished. It'd I would. I'd be, be like, oh, scary. thank you, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> probably less scary that he was a ghost. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> Just saying. On moonlit nights, the ghosts of gravestones are said to be seen. Misty apparitions and figures are seen pretty commonly. And now this seems really creepy to me. But many people have actually claimed that after laying down in the grass of the park for a while, they claim it's very difficult to get back up. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) As I read that, that didn't sound very scary anymore. I'm picturing all these people like Randy from A Christmas Story. I can't get up! I lay down on the ground. I have a very hard time getting up regardless <laughs> if it's a cemetery or not. Hard... <laughs> Nothing keeping me down by my age. But... <laughs> so to finish this up, in 2008, they were working on a new parking lot for the Botanic Gardens when they discovered human bones and parts of coffins in the ground. Doesn't surprise me. And then in 2010... As they worked on the irrigation system in the park, four full skeletons were also found. And I'm sure there's way more. Way more. Have been found, maybe not advertised. Because like I said, this is. Exactly. I mean, they have weekly free movies in the park and all, you know, the amphitheaters there. They have all these activities and they probably really don't want people to know there are still bodies hidden in Chessman Park. I wonder how many people actually know that it used to be a large cemetery. You Google Chessman Park and it's like, used to be a cemetery. It's everywhere. Okay. 
but but if you don't google if you know i go to parks here I if don't you go google travel and you visit denver for like work or something and you're like i need to go take a walk you just go to a you, park you don't and just know. walk around yeah yeah but yeah. i was reading um an article and there was a comment on the article and i am drawing a blank as to the website but the guy that made the comment was saying that in europe you in parts of europe you can actually rent burial spots I guess rent that's them? a thing. Yeah. And if you don't pay rent, then you lose the spot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I just thought that was so interesting that, I don't know, I guess people treat death and handling of the deceased very differently around the world. Oh my gosh. Wow. So you rent a plot and then when you can't pay anymore, then they just dig it up and dump it. Yeah. I guess this is a sign that we should be cremated because you never know when they're going to say, dig her up, <laughs> find a new hole to put her in, get her out of here. We want to play Frisbee. <laughs> <laughs> oh my we want to have a picnic. Get her out of here. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's crazy. I didn't even know that you could do that because like, cemetery is like a sacred ground. I know. That's why I thought it was bonkers. <laughs> they cleared a whole area for a lake. They cleared a whole area for a park. Okay, now I'm I'm just going to throw this out there. Denver's surrounded by nature. I know. <laughs> it's not, not New York or something. I mean, but it this is kind of like their little Central Park. It's it's in the middle of the city in Denver. But it's just like even in the 1800s, so it was even smaller than it is today. I know. So pe people could just kind of just step outside of the city and they'd be right there in nature. Weird. Okay. That's all I'm going to say about that because that whole thing's just messed up. Very odd to me too. That's what we got for you, Colorado. All right. Fun stuff. Hey, next week is you. I am so excited about my story next week like all I know is Washington Oregon so 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 excited oh my gosh <sighs> oh my gosh oh my gosh all right all right well is your coffee empty yet coffee is gone coffee is gone all right and we'll have to post the coffee as well as that delicious sounding drink yes on our website yes and all the resources and pictures from this episode will go on our website, killerhangoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook. And we have our Patreon, where Yay. you get episodes released early, extra episodes. And those that joined recently will be getting a nice little goodie in the mail just to thank you for joining. We really appreciate it. Thank you for sending us your addresses. I've noticed that coming in. Yep. Thank you. And that's all we got for you. <laughs> all right. Episode 71, Colorado. All right, honey. Well, that was interesting. Virtual cheers. Virtual cheers, mama. I love you, kid. 